Welcome to the frighteningly informative episode 19 of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond the grave. In association with Discover Science and Engineering, I'm monstrous Marie Boren, and with me in the crypt tonight are terrifying Trino O'Connell and ghastly Gavin Byrne. Find our podcast, if you dare, at cybernia.ie, or you can find us at cybernia, that's S-I-B-E-R-N-I-A, on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, I think that's actually enough of the cheesy adjectives for now, but we do actually have quite a spooky show lined up for you. First, we go in search of the Yeti and other mythical beasts before looking at the frankly gruesome survival mechanisms of some of the animal kingdom, including the vampire bat. But the Halloween episode of Cybernia wouldn't be complete without some paranormal activity. We delve deep into parascience and debunk the Ghostbusters toolbox. Now, werewolves and vampires might not be real, but what about Bigfoot? In the last few weeks, a team of Yeti hunters in Russia claim to have evidence of the animal's existence. While in Indonesia, researchers say that they've found evidence of the existence of the elusive Orang Pendek, or Little Man. Lenny Antonelli spoke with Patrick Fisher, who's been researching the discipline of cryptozoology for 20 years, to separate the science from the myth. Patrick, you're a member of the YYJ Skeptics Group in Victoria, in Canada, and you've also been conducting investigations in cryptozoology for about 20 years or so. Can you, can you start by telling me a bit about what exactly cryptozoology is? Is it a science? Some people think it is. Uh, others um, use, uh, think of it more of a, as a category for um, investigating or doing research. It's, it can be it's, that's a can be a tough question because a lot of people do not see it. Most uh, the scientific community do not see cryptozoology. I think as a science. It's and for a lot of people, I think it's more of a hobby. And, and how would you define what cryptozoology is? Uh, cryptozoology is the study of uh, basically it's the study of unknown uh, creatures or life. So things that may have not been proven to exist or are believed to be extinct or uh, excuse me ex- extinct but um some people still think that they exist so this could range from i suppose from creatures like the like, like from everything from the Loch Ness monster to the yeti one reason sort of that it's been in the news recently is because there was a story of a team of yeti hunters in uh, Siberia who claimed they were 95% sure to have found evidence of the Yeti, while there was another team in Sumatra, um, in Indonesia, who claimed that who, who claimed they had found some evidence for the the Orang Pendek, which is this sort of mythical short uh, species of ape. What sort of creatures that cryptozoologists are looking for might actually exist? Are there any that? Um, you know, could actually be out there? And is there anything um, in terms of real scientific evidence behind some of these latest stories, uh, such as the one about the Yeti? What I've read, the this thing with the Yeti, it sounds almost like it was more of a something geared for bringing up uh, um, paranormal tourism. From the from the impression that I've, I've gotten from reading a lot of this is uh, there was not a whole lot of evidence produced. You, you've been uh, conducting investigations yourself, I mean, in cryptozoology. What kind of investigations have you conducted? And, what, you know, what animals have you been looking for? Well, I, because I live on the West Coast, we do get our, and quite a few reports about things such as Sasquatch and uh, also uh, Cabrasaurus, which is a local sea monster, which is supposed to exist between um, basically 
uh, in the waters between California and up through Alaska. So off and on, I mean, a lot of my investigations have just been just interviews and talking with people. When we do have uh, evidence or, or physical evidence, such as footprints and that sort of thing, we'll take, we do take a look at those. Uh, but like I said, a lot of it has, uh, has either been inconclusive or we've discovered it to be uh, a hoax. Are there any sort of mythical creatures or, or cryptic creatures that you think anywhere in the world might exist? Which, which ones, if any, do you think we're most likely to, to actually find? That's a good question. I mean, when I'm when I because when we were sort of discussing that uh, over emails, um, I was actually gave, gave it some serious thought, and I was talking with a few other uh, acquaintances of mine, and then we started raising a whole bunch of extra questions, which really we really had to stop and really start to ponder, because then you're starting to look into things like, well, what would the life expectancy be of something like this, or you know, some creature. Um, what the, what size population would it have to have to to continue to exist? Um, you know, you have to you know a minimum population level just to keep uh, to maintain their current population levels. Um, yeah, and if, I mean, if you talk about something like a if you talk about like a something like a yeti or a bigfoot, I mean, presumably some a creature that large. Um, you know, and a, and a population of creatures that large would need quite a substantial land area to support them. They they would, and not only would they need a large land area, they would. Um, you'd need the food. You'd also have to start wondering because I know, for example, with a Sasquatch, which was the one that uh, me and my uh, friends were talking about the other night, is would there be a risk of cross contamination? For example. Like bird flu, that sort of thing. If would something like that have be at risk from that, um, you know, just just viruses. I mean, the yeah. average gorilla, the average life expectancy for a gorilla is uh, thirty to fifty years. Okay. A human, a human on the west uh, in North America, the average life expectancy is say eighty years. Yeah. So, but then again, we as humans also have no germ theory, and we. We uh, vaccinate ourselves, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, let's go with say forty or fifty years as a life expectancy for something, some big hairy creature. Then add that to what what population size is required for it to continue to exist. I suppose on a on a on a, on a planet that has you know largely been explored now. Obviously, there are still pockets that that, that haven't been fully fully explored. It's hard to imagine sort of large species like that being able to survive. No, I mean, granted, Siberia is a, a lot more spread out for population-wise. Even for us in Canada, most of our population is uh, to this along the, pretty much along the southern border. I think about nine percent of our population is along the southern border with the yeah. United States. Um, so there's always a possibility that there's something to the north, but we do have a population to the north. But, I mean, I've seen bears and many other um, things. I saw a deer one morning driving around a corner, and at first I thought it was a cougar. So people do can misidentify things all the time. And like I said, I do know that there's – we have like, for example, on Vancouver Island, we do have black bears. And I've, uh, I've seen them cr climbing up 
embankments and that sort of thing, and does it can look very similar to something like a Sasquatch. Okay, so have there been any creatures, uh, you know, that were once considered to be myth or fantasy that have actually been discovered um, in in sort of we, recent history? We have things like the giant squid. Um, there's uh, one fish that I think was found just off of. Uh, where was it? The Indian Ocean. Names escapes me right now. Uh, so we do know that things or creatures have been found that have been part of legend. Those legends may have uh, blown things a little bit more out of proportion by saying it was uh, 150 feet long as opposed to, say, 50 feet long for, say, a giant squid or, you know, 35 feet long for a giant squid. So... We also have, you know, we have to take our take our legends with a grain of salt because, like almost most things, they do um, get a little bit more exciting as time goes on and the stories get retold and changed. From your experience, um, I don't know, dealing with 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 people engaged in cryptozoology, do many of them take a genuinely scientific, evidence based approach or? Are a lot of them, you know, kind of pursuing something that they they really want to believe in, and therefore, you know, uh, misreading evidence because they they want to believe. I think a majority are in the uh, in the uh, second camp. There, they okay. uh, they've already come up with a conclusion. Now they're just trying they're trying to create or fit evidence to fit their uh, beliefs. And uh, is there any, I mean, uh, any particularly ridiculous or Im- Im- implausible creatures that have been posited to you um, that you can recall, that the ones that are sort of just so so ridiculous they made you laugh? Daniel Loxton, who's the editor for Junior Skeptic, did a wonderful article, uh, what, about a year, a year and a half ago, about the Thetis-like monster, which was reported in the early 1970s here in Victoria. And in fact, I remember when that uh, story had come out. It was a lizard man. It really? almost looked like it almost looked like a creature from the Black Lagoon. In fact, Daniel did enough research into it and eventually found out that the kids who reported seeing it had actually um, the local TV station had actually aired the creature from the Black Lagoon just a little bit prior to them seeing that or reporting this. So it was a case of the of the of the movie kind of fueling people's imaginations. Yeah, there was that was a big part of it, and uh, I think part of it is um, even though I mean Daniel went out and he actually found one of the guys who were one of the kids who had reported it at that time, who's now in his forties or what have you, and the guy admitted, yeah, we made it up, but there's still. Um, other groups that are saying, oh, this creature was still sighted and it exists. And even though we do have the evidence and an actual admittance of this being a, a, a prank, it's still being perpetuated as being backed by some some groups. Okay, so the jury's out on the Yeti, but technically vampires do exist, but only in the animal kingdom. According to Trinity College zoologist Nicola Marples, there are plenty of them, and most of the time they behave quite well and leave their victims alive. Which is more than you can say for a species that like to mate with their partner after they've bitten their head off. Although Marple says this is evolutionarily advantageous because the spider's got a snack and a sperm donor all in one. Cannibalism is quite interesting. Um, particularly, what, one of the things that interests me is siblicide. 
um, as okay. in, um, allowing your young to kill each other. And um, there's a nice example in hyenas where um, if two of the same sex, um, if twins of the same sex um, get born, then the mother will actually put them into the den and let them kill each other, let, let one kill the other. Oh, well, it's like um, Animal Kingdom Cain and Abel or something. That's right, yes. <laughs> and the question is why they would do that. I mean, why doesn't she just kill one of them herself? But she can't necessarily tell which one's the stronger. Um, so she, you know, it, it makes sense to, to let them work it out for themselves, effectively. And what age but would the cubs be? Like, are they able to fend? Uh, oh, right, wow. Right at the beginning. Um, and it's because she's got no point in her putting an investment in the young, in too young, both of whom will grow up the same age, because what happens is that um, they, only one of them is ever going to be the top dog in the pack, um, or the top hyena. And so, therefore, there's, there's no point in having two that will, when they're bigger... Um, they're, they're likely to both injure each other. Um, so even if one of them then wins, um, it's, he's, a, he's less likely to hold the pack for as long. Yeah. Um, and similarly, females, are, um, in, particularly in hyenas, they're a very female-based society. So again, she can't have two females both getting to be top dog because only one of them is going to breed and they might actually end up injuring each other. Yeah. Um, and so from an evolutionary perspective, then why it, do, it does seem like a waste to bring two cubs to term fully give birth to both of them and then... Yes, presumably. She yeah. doesn't know which, that they're going to be the same sex, because if they're opposite sexes, it's right. fine. Right, yeah, of um, course. But if they're yeah. the same sex, then they'll interfere with each other. Um, so she doesn't know until they're born, at which point she effectively um, aborts one of them late and yeah. then lets, the, lets one of them kill the other. And are there any other examples in the animal kingdom of something like that? Sibilocytes. Yeah. There's quite a few, actually. Sibilocytes quite interesting, because um, it also happens in birds. Um um, things like eagles and such like uh, birds of prey tend to have their eggs hatch separately ha- hatch um, one at a time something like a blue tit will um, have 12 eggs or so but it will hatch them all simultaneously and they'll all um, uh, hatch on the same day but um, something like a, an eagle will have them hatch a couple of days apart so one's big, one's middle sized and one's tiny and again, you would think, well, why, um, why don't you just bring up all three? Or why don't the pair of them bring up all three? And the answer is, um, has actually been, been studied by somebody um, looking at this in egrets, which is a big white bird, um, a bit like a heron. Um, and the, um, what they showed is that if you mix, the, mix um, nests around so that you end up with three all the same age, then all three do less well and the parents take more energy um, looking yeah, after yeah. them. Um, if instead you um, make the, the gap between them by mixing chicks together, you make the gap between them any bigger than it currently is, then still the parents don't do as well. Um, because the, the, the best of the options is that you, you have exactly the distance that they currently are. Um, and the two older ones will set on the younger one and kill it if there's any lack of food. But if there's plenty of food, then actually they don't bother, and so you end up with all three chicks. So the, the option is, is effectively allowing the, the young to decide that the parents are working too hard bringing in, too much, bringing in the food, and that there's not enough to go around, and therefore they kill off the, the youngest one. So it's just a matter um, of energy in, energy out, really. It's just <laughs> energy in, as most of animal kingdom decisions are. I mean, evolutionary decisions aren't decisions by anyone. Yeah, it's strange that humans aren't really like that, or maybe we are. <laughs> we probably are a lot more than we think. But um, 
Yeah, the um, killing of mates is is also quite interesting, and um, it, it's classic that spiders do this, but quite a few other things do it as well. And um, praying mantises will do it, um, and a, a number of other insects. And actually, what's going on there is that the male has done everything he's going to do for the offspring by producing the sperm. So he's no further use. Um, so you may as well kill him off and, and get the, the um, nutrients from him that, that you would get by eating. Yeah. As long as he's mated, um, then, yeah. then as far as the female is concerned, he's waste product and just potential food. So she may as well eat him. I suppose it's a good point. It's not like other species where the male will protect or feed the young or serve some purpose. He might be a danger to the young. Um, so getting oh, okay. rid of him entirely is quite a good idea. Um, it, as, long as, as, long as, he's, as long as you keep him alive for long enough to mate. But that's also quite interesting and quite macabre because um, insects are actually driven um, much more by the, um, the parts along their backbone of their brain rather than the brain at the top. And so, therefore, they can continue to mate. You can knock off their head, and they'll continue to mate perfectly adequately um, once, once they, the idea has got into their head and they've passed it on to the lower regions. <laughs> wow. The lower regions can get on with the job without the head do, doing anything to, uh, to, to drive it at all. So cutting off his head and eating it just means that he's going to concentrate on carrying on mating. Wow, so it's actually very effective. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that. in some ways for the female. Yes, yeah. well, it's a good thing in several ways for the female because it's dinner, <laughs> dinner and she gets his full complement of sperm. Yeah. Is it possible to capture paranormal activity on camera? Are orbs evidence of this? Gavin Byrne talks to Steve Parsons from UK paranormal investigation organisation Parasigns. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about parascience in general and what makes you different from other paranormal groups. Um, I guess, well, we, we started off like many, many other groups, uh, a shared interest in exploring the paranormal. And about, uh, oh gosh, uh, 18 or more years ago, myself and Anne Winsper, uh, the, co-found, the uh, other co-founder of Parascience, we're both in a small regional local paranormal group uh, in in Merseyside, and to be honest, we weren't very happy with what with uh, the way things were progressing. It was it was a lot of running around in the dark, and uh, the technology wasn't really there in those days. And um, we we were we got talking over over a few uh, weeks months. And realised that that really there was a there was a long history of of ghost hunting of apparition uh, investigation um, that we could draw upon, and some very famous names and some and some really good science had been had already been done, but but had largely been forgotten, um, and this sort of sparked a desire within us both that that possibly instead of just chasing around in the dark looking for you know waiting for the ghost to appear um that we could actually learn learn from those lessons um of the past um and and develop them as newer technology came along i remember it was around that time that digital uh, cameras first started to make an appearance as did uh, digital record portable digital recorders in the form of mini discs now the area of orbs is one that people get very excited about when when they get a photo of one on camera now it's an area you've done some research on as well isn't it yeah orbs they've always almost become my my pariah subject um 
Yeah, well, we we encountered uh, orbs uh, quite early on. Um, with we, we we'd invested a great deal of money in what was one of the earliest uh, digital cameras. Uh, I remember it well. It, a Sony Mavica that took floppy disks and took ten photos per disk. Yeah. And I think it had a 0.8 megapixel sensor because we got the super version of it. Um, but we, we encountered these um, anomalous blobs of, blobs of light uh, on a number of investigations. And to be honest, they completely baffled us and intrigued us. And we christened them light balls uh, for no other reason than we, we just gave them a name that we could refer to them by. Um, and... and we were, you know, we were really quite interested in this possible new, possibly paranormal phenomena that we that we were encountering. Uh, we we'd sent off the pictures to Sony um, when we when we had uh, sort of the first three or four from lo- different locations, and uh, they really didn't offer us much by uh, much by way of explanation. And so over the next uh, few months, I think it was over about uh, the next six months or so, we started to get them more and more often. And the Internet was becoming you know, a much easier thing to access. Uh, to access. And we, we were looking at other paranormal groups, particularly American groups who were also using digital photography. And they also were encountering them. And it was just the sheer volume of the of these things appearing on our on our investigations and on the investigation reports of other groups that started to uh, ring the alarm bells really because it, in in our in our opinion if something is paranormal it really should be quite quite rarely encountered and we were starting to encounter these little blobs of light on uh, on, on almost every investigation uh, location we visited, uh, they were perhaps turning up in three or four out of every ten photographs, and that just didn't seem right. Uh, Sony had given us one um, lead when they suggested it might be dust being picked up by the sensor or dust on the front front of the lens, and that was a line we we, we pursued. Uh, we then um, noticed that they... Uh, when we sort of expanded into night vision photography uh, video using the uh, the night shot cameras the night shot video cameras that we were getting a very similar phenomena but of course on video this time it was moving and it became sort of quite apparent that what we were dealing with here was in fact something airborne floating around and reflecting the light back to the camera and we spent quite a considerable time uh, examining the problem and ending and collecting pictures uh, of of orb phenomena from well from any source we could on the internet. I think we ended up with well over ten thousand photographs by the end of uh, the year. Um, and of course, looking at uh, the different sort of problems uh, and the actual mechanics of the cameras. Uh, it became very apparent that we were actually dealing with a, a, a perfectly normal, mundane uh, reflection um, from airborne matter, dust, water, pollen. Um, and we, we we wrote our first report, which I thought was, uh, which I think was called "Orbs uh, or a Load of Balls." <laughs> 
Um, and there we left it because we, we knew we couldn't go any further. The technology, we had in mind some experiments that we'd like to have done, but they were, for different technical and, and uh, other reasons, they were, they were beyond our, our ability at that stage. Uh, but one of the things that we always had in the back of our mind was that a properly constructed uh, stereo camera would actually give us um, more of an insight into the problem and actually demonstrate that that, that it was in fact uh, dust very close into the the uh, lens front uh, that was reflecting the light back and creating these orbs as they by by now being christened by our American investigator friends. Um, and we were lucky. Um, I think about uh, late two thousand and nine, Fuji. Um, finally released the uh, W1 stereo camera. We'd seen it uh, possible, I think, earlier in the spring uh, in some exhibition articles um, where Fuji were sort of pre-announcing it, and we managed to get hold of one of the very, I think, possibly was um, in the first batch that came into the UK. Um, it was certainly before it went on sale to the general public. We, got, we managed to get one. And... Um, we set about taking thousands and thousands of photographs at haunted locations. In fact, um, during Paracon in 2010, uh, sorry, 2009, at Wicklow Jail, it was in use there. Uh, and um, I hope nobody really minds me telling this story. But yeah. uh, while we were there that night, we were, it, because the W1 looks very, uh, it just looks like an ordinary 3D camera. Um, a normal digital camera, sorry. And most people don't really notice there are two lenses and uh, uh, within the body. And we, I was happily taking pictures of, of the proceedings and getting lots of orbs on the screen. And the medium who was, who was helping out on the investigation at Wicklow that night, um, I'm tactfully forgetting his name at the moment, um, noticed that I'd taken a picture of him uh, and just above, I think, uh, just above him in the shot was uh, quite a prominent orb. Um, and he looked at the camera screen and he, he said that that was definitely um, uh, an orb uh, and definitely was the spirit of the little girl, which I think he named Annie, um, and was absolutely adamant that we'd managed to capture uh, on the digital camera a representation um, of the spirit which he was communicating with. Needless to say, of course, that when the when the image was downloaded from the uh, the camera and the left and right stereo images were looked at, um, and perhaps paranormally, little Annie was only on the left-hand side shot and uh, was completely missing from the right-hand shot, uh, which led us to, um, after the, I think we're 1,800 stereo per, so that's 3,600 individual photographs. I think we're now up to 4,000. Uh, we we re uh, we sort of rewrote the original article and uh, entitled it appropriately. Orbs are a load of balls, <laughs> and I think we've absolutely demonstrated, uh, except to the the flat Earth believers, um, that orbs are in fact uh, anything but paranormal. Um, perfectly mundane dust, moisture. Um, droplets of, of pollen, all manner of, of normal airborne matter that's floating around. 
So if you'd like more information on paranormal research, you can go to our blog at cybernia.ie. But now I think it's time for some spooky events, Trina. Okay, the Thesis in Three competition is back. So on Wednesday the 9th of November, PhD students from around the country will present their SFI-funded work to the public in three-minute chunks. The competition will run in Mansion House from 7.30pm and all are welcome to attend. There are no tickets, so just turn up and soak up the science. More details can be found at clarity-centre.org forward slash thesis and three. That's the number three, by the way. And also, the second lecture in the SFI speaker series complements the Science Gallery Surface Tension Show. On the 17th of November, Dr. Alex Van Tulliken will talk about health, water and development in the developing world. The lecture starts at 6pm and costs €5. To book and find out more, visit sciencegallery.com. On Saturday the 19th of November, the School of Theoretical Physics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies will present their annual statutory lecture. Professor Kumran Vafa of Harvard University will discuss geometric physics. The talk will be held in the J.M. Singh Lecture Hall in TCD at 6.30pm. Admission is free and for more details visit dias.ie. And last but not least, the European Space Agency is inviting people to join the YouTube Space Lab Student Space Competition. They're looking for you to design an experiment that you'd like to see on the International Space Station and let them know all about it. You can find them on YouTube or you can visit esa.int for more. So that's it for the show. And remember, you can download all of our podcasts through cybernia.ie and keep up with Cybernia News through twitter.com forward slash cybernia and facebook.com forward slash cybernia. And we'd like to thank our Cybernia contributors and our producer, Gavin Byrne. And thank you for listening to the Cybernia Science Podcast. <laughs>